You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Alright, so welcome to episode two of Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. A lot of things have happened since last episode. We actually uh, got listeners. I guess that's a good thing. A lot more than we expected, and thanks to everybody who downloaded that first show. We're actually like number two on Yahoo Podcasts for a while, which is kind of insane. I don't know how their search engines work. Number working, two but for what? For video games? Yeah, if you search for video game, actually. Video games, we weren't as high, but video game, we were really high. So I think everybody searches for video game. At least that's All what right. I, I told myself at night. We really appreciate you guys listening to it. Of course, we really want you to check out the forums. There's been several people who came on and said, you know, we really like the show. But uh, not many haters, so uh, the haters, it'd be great if you actually got on and told us that we sucked or, <laughs> or just got more interaction on the on the forums. And that's at www.twitchasylum.com. Twitchasylum.com. Although, we do get a lot of hits. Did you notice that, Tom? Did you look at the web blog at all? And where did they come from? Right, okay. Well, they actually came from a site, uh, podcastdirectory.com, which I, I, I did register with. And, and what I, were people searching for that found us? Well, I put it under the category video game because I figured, you know, it's under video game, you know, we're a video game podcast. Makes sense. Makes sense. What would happen is I was looking in our Apache log, and apparently the search term being searched for was sex video. <laughs> and they found us. Yeah, sex video. So a lot of hits to our site from uh, Podcast Directory. We want to thank them for uh, the sex video search and, uh, <laughs> and linking that to Twitch Sound Video Game. So Radio. how many of the people who searched for that actually downloaded our show and listened to it? Well, I don't know about that, Tom, but our hit count on the website was high, and that's all, that's all I worry about. <laughs> And, right. and I would like to say that the number one hit on podcastdirectory.com for sex video is the uh, Bell Shals Baptist Church Vodcast of the Sermon. So apparently we're not alone. So this is actually a really big episode for me. I'm really excited. We're not going to do the rant. We're going to have our first ever interview. Yeah, there's going to be an interview today, and uh, it's going to be more retro than normal. Not that we're not going to do modern, because as we said last episode, we're always going to do modern and retro. So we're going to do some modern stuff, but uh, it's big time retro. Well, we have a bit of a theme this episode, and the theme is Atari. Yeah, Atari. I'm still amazed that someone was willing to come on our show. It's just <laughs> stunning. <laughs> so, yeah, we're actually uh, looking at the video Once Upon Atari, uh, the DVD, which is out, and we're going to review that and talk about that. And we're going to be joined by Howard Scott Warshaw. He's actually the guy who created the documentary. He's probably best known for the Atari Classics Yars Revenge. Probably just as well known, unfortunately, for E.T., but uh, he made the video, so he's going to come on and talk to us about it. He gives us a really special insight that I think you don't even get if you watch the video. So uh, let's get it started, because this can be a long episode. All right, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's time for this episode's Gaming Moments. What have you been playing lately, Tom? Well, the game I've been playing lately is a game called Getting Up. Getting It Up, yeah. No, no, Getting Up, which oh. is, I think, a little different than Getting It Up. Is oh. it hard? It's, you know, it, get, <laughs> it gets hard eventually. I bet it does. The first few levels are not that hard. <laughs> 
and it's a game about being a graffiti artist uh -huh. and trying to spray your sure. art on the walls and right. and attack other taggers who are trying to you know outdo you. The game has been banned in Australia. I guess probably they are... because of the title. I'm thinking it's because <laughs> of the title. I think it's, it's because obscene. they're worried that it's going to inspire kids to go out and vandalize things in real life. Right. Which I think is a bit silly. I mean, every game doesn't cause people to imitate it. If it did, we'd all be dead from playing Frogger. And I like this game better than I expected to like it. And you might ask, well, why did I buy it if I didn't expect to like it? Uh, why did you buy it if you didn't expect to like it? Because it's so different. And that's what I like about it. it it's not another first-person shooter. It's not another driving game or World War II game or some established genre. It's a game about being an artist and spraying graffiti. And there was one other game about that. There was that uh, Jet Grind Radio. Remember that? Was it Jet Grind Radio or well, Jet actually, Set Radio? Jet Set Radio. There were two different titles for oh. it, actually. And, and that, game, that game was more about rollerblading. And there was this element where you could spray graffiti tags. I played that game, but I could never get like through the level. I just kept skating around. And I, <laughs> I didn't know what the idea was, so I didn't play it again. But this one is more about the graffiti, and, and you don't have a rollerblading element. Actually, a lot of it is more about climbing. So have you ever seen graffiti in real life, and you wonder, like, how did they even get up on the side of that building to do that? No. Um, no? Well, in this game... Tagging, I believe it's tagging, yeah. Tagging, yeah. So in this game, it has a lot of climbing puzzles where you have to figure out how to navigate through the environment, how to climb up drain pipes and jump across things and eventually get to some really interesting spot where you're going to spray the giant graffiti tag. So Mark echoes getting it up. Now, getting it, up. It, that getting may, up. So, I'll take your word for it. It's a great game. But it, just to me, uh, uh, the description sounds like some marketing guy was playing... Uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and saw one of the lamer side missions where they have to go tag something <laughs> yeah, and decide, hey, that should be a whole game. Yeah. But uh, I'll, tell you, I'll take your word for it. It's good. I'll, I'll have to try it. Right, I'd so say it's good. It's definitely worth a rental to see if you like this style of game. Now, also on our What We're Playing Now front, we have a new convert to Geometry Wars, right? Yes. So yesterday I got to play Geometry Wars on Chris's Xbox 360. Yeah, I let him play it on my 360 only for a bit, and he had to wash his hands first. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a great game. To me, it was very much like a cross between Robotron and Asteroids. The action is intense. It's just frenetic. It's, just, it's a throwback to the old school games. It's just action, and the whole point is to get to the scoreboard. Um, there's no missions or whatever, but it's just it was a lot of fun, and it's just it's a it's a twitch game. It's right. very much based on your re reflexes, how fast you can react, what you can see on the screen, getting down the movements in the controls. Um, just something you could pick up quick and play, but you could play for a long time. Well, you Excellent. can't play it for a long time, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you have a new high score now. What is it? Well, it was, uh, well, I saw that you got 300,000. I did and get I was, finally I was impressed 000. for almost a second. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I went ahead and got like 700 and some thousand. And I was like, yeah, last episode I said I'd get 700,000. I got 700,000. But then Tom had 300,000, which is almost half of 700,000. <laughs> so I played it a little bit longer and I got a million. And then I got 1.1 nice. million. So I'm about 1.1 million right now, Tom. And I'm assuming by next episode, I'm going to clear 2 million. Yeah, I'm saying it now. 2 million. All Razor right, he, on Xbox Live Tag. Sand, Check it folks. out. Next episode, 2 million. I think, yeah. I think in 10 minutes playing, I broke 100,000. So I figure with a couple hours, no, no, I'll be you, up to you where broke you were. 10,000. No, no, no. no. I, <laughs> broke 10, I broke 100,000. I broke 100. Yeah, if you add up all your scores, certainly you did break it. <laughs> all right, all right. 
But I, I figure I'll need just about a couple hours to break beat your score. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I've actually been playing a couple games. First of all, I, I showed Woody the Xbox 360 because he'd never seen it. Uh, we, t- we took it out of its uh, holding case, and I did plug it in and uh, let Woody even touch a controller. <laughs> and uh, we played a bit of uh, PGR. Project we, Gotham Racing yeah, 3. Yeah, Project Gotham. And went on there, and, and it took forever to get online. But uh, finally, we got online, and uh, I don't know why, what the weight was, but uh, showed Woody the graphics, and that was pretty cool. Uh, you guys went it, around Las Vegas, right? Yeah, yeah. And Toward the, that Las Vegas it was, level? It was great. It was very much like my last vacation, it, seeing, <laughs> seeing all the sights. You must uh, drive fast. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, originally, I was skeptical of the next-generation boxes having the HDTV. I, I didn't know how much you'd be able to see it in the games, um, but I, I will say the graphics were stunning. The other thing I've been playing is a full auto, which Tom and I looked at the demo. We downloaded it. We were all excited, and they finally posted to Xbox Live, and we downloaded it, and we said, boy, this is uh, full of crap. It sucks. But um, Yeah, the demo was fully awful. Fully awful, I think that's what we called it. It was a terrible demo, but I guess the game, the real game is better, right? Well, the, the multiplayer on the real game is good. I, I played the single player for approximately 10 minutes, and I don't think I'll ever play it again. But the multiplayer is pretty fun uh, versus PGR. Uh, PGR is a great game. Graphics are good. It's fun to race online, but people get a little irritated if you hit them. So <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, you know, they want these clean races and stuff. But on full auto, it's just the opposite. It's all about taking your opponents out, and I guess that's probably more my style. So I, I've been enjoying the multiplayer on that. Uh, one thing I found amazing was you told me that people actually um, – will get incensed if you run into their cars yeah. while racing. Oh, yeah, they will. And they'll give you a bad rating. And that just dumbfounds me. I mean, who are these idiots? The, the, <laughs> the, the idea of, you know, if, if it wasn't, if you weren't supposed to, if collisions weren't supposed to matter in the game, then the game designers would have made it so that you can't collide. I mean, it's not a bug in the game that, t- that running into other cars actually affects the way it's happening. So I don't understand these people who don't want to play the game as designed or who think that's ridiculous. Well, I think what they're complaining about is that they want it to feel like a real race. And in right, a real yeah. car race, you wouldn't intentionally crash into another no, car. No, because I will quote from Robert Duvall from Days of Thunder, Rubbin's racing, boy. <laughs> you know, and uh, sorry, but uh, it's the case. You know, collisions do happen yeah. in races, too. That's part of the race. And, yeah, and the point is if someone's crashing all the time, then they won't win. But the point is you've got to be able to deal with those people. And if you were good at the game, then you would be able to take advantage of the fact that they're touching other cars and you would be able to work around it. The fact that you're complaining about someone running into you just means that you suck. How do you really feel about it, Woody? Well, that's how I feel. So, you know, if, if anyone disagrees, feel free to come on our forums and explain it to me. But I really, my, my opinion, you know, it's a feature of the game. you got to learn to yeah. deal with it. I also looked at a, a couple of demos that came out, the black demo on the Xbox, original Xbox, and I thought that was pretty good. That was like the best graphics I'd seen on an Xbox game recently. Some people are dogging it, saying it's it's too hard to kill people. But from what I've heard, it's on the hard difficulty of the demo, at least. So hopefully the release game isn't like that. Also played Time Shift on the PC in prep for the uh, 360 game that's coming out. But uh, I, didn't, I wasn't really into it. Well, what is Time Shift? What kind of a game is that? It's a shooter-type thing where you can control time, Tom. Sort of like in Prince of Persia? It's kind of like Prince of Persia. Take a Halo, take Prince of Persia, take Perfect Dark Zero, mix them all up, and you get time shift. That's kind of how I describe <laughs> it. But, you know, the demo's only five minutes. I'd seen it before. didn't really impress me that much. I, Black on the Xbox impressed me way more. I also tried Grid Wars on the PC, which is a Geometry Wars clone. I went out and bought a 360 wired controller, plugged it into my PC so I could play it. 
And Grid Wars 2 is supposed to be a clone of Geometry Wars, but it just really doesn't have the same feel as Geometry Wars. It's not as fast. Explosions aren't there. So, so overall, I wasn't that impressed compared to Geometry Wars, but it's still a decent game. So if you have a PC and you want to kind of feel what Geometry Wars is like, check it out. It's called Grid Wars 2. It's a free download, right? It's a free download, yeah. And I think actually Microsoft's trying to get rid of it, so you better hurry if you want to want to give it a shot. <laughs> now the news. And now the news. Take it away, Woody. What's going on in Utah? So, Game Politics is apparently reporting that Utah's House of Representatives has just passed the so-called Games as Porn Bill. Is that applying to Mark Echoes getting it up? It could. <laughs> it could. Boiled down, this allows the state to prosecute people who sell violent video games to minors as if they had sold pornography to minors. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and essentially they classify it in the same classification as reckless drunk driving. Maybe that's a little bit extreme. Well, I think it's very extreme because you wouldn't prosecute somebody who let a minor into an R-rated movie as if they had committed a major felony, would you? I probably would, Tom. You would? Uh, Why not? I'm personally a little... I'm torn a couple ways on this. Uh, First, I think it's ridiculous this law exists. You know, who cares where they're selling it to? I think that's just stupid in the first place. You don't care if they sell it to, like, Five-year-old? No, no. It's just, I don't believe in liquor laws either. You know, there's so no five-year-olds should be drinking, five-year-olds should be drinking and, and, and playing Grand Theft porn. Auto and watching exactly. porn. Apparently, Mark exactly. getting enough. So, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm no longer 15 years old, so I really don't care about those people. I right. don't care about myself, um, and I can get these games fine. Kids. So wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Are you in favor of this bill or not? Oh, I'm against all laws in general. All right, that's right. I'm an anarchy advocate. All right, so the next news story is the Xbox 360 camera and microphone information has been released. Exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Apparently, Kumar Banerjee, is that, is that how you pronounce Kumar it? Banerjee, 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 Maybe. Banerjee. Anyway, he's with the Microsoft Hardware Development Group, and he uh, released some information recently that basically says they're going to have this camera that has in-camera video processing, 30 frames per second, stills, low-light performance, video chat, and gesture gaming. So this is just an iToy for the 360, right? The 360 iToy is my interpretation exactly, Tom. And I would further go to say, especially with gesture gaming, it kind of sounds like they're trying to gear it more toward the whole Nintendo revolution, as Woody would call it, the magic wand of Nintendo. (laughs) The magic wand. (laughs) Well, don't you think that this will really be used on the 360 with broadband more for things like video chat. No, actually I don't think it'll be used. Period. <laughs> but yeah, video chat would be the one thing I might see it being used for. A lot of people might use it especially in their games, but I listen to the people that play the games and to be honest, I really don't want to see them. <laughs> I don't have any desire to see anybody who I'm uh, talking to in PGR or full auto, but it's interesting to listen to them. Don't think I could take seeing them visually. <laughs> All right, now our next article is from Business Week, and it's, it started out talking about games being used in the classroom. And then it went on to say that in West Virginia, uh, they're rolling out Dance Dance Revolution as a fitness tool to 163 middle schools, but they're spending $600,000 for a program to equip all state public schools by 2009. Now, I think this is amazing. First of all, it's a great idea. Because Dance Dance Revolution is one of the few games that actually gives you a letter grade at the end. So yeah. the teacher can just put that right in your report card. What you couldn't grade do you dispute usually, it. Tom? 
Um, depending on what I'm, what level I'm playing on, I get an A if I'm playing on light. That's good, Tom. That's good. Or if Kudos. I'm playing on heavy, I usually get a C. Oh, that's not so good. Needs improvement. <laughs> but see, that if you were to ask your teacher, well, why did I get a C in gym class? They could say, well, there it was on the screen. You must not have gotten enough combos. Um, the other thing I think is funny <laughs> is that we live in Portland, Oregon. We do. And if you open up the newspaper and you read an article about schools, it always says the same thing. It always says, schools are going broke. They don't have any money. We've got to raise taxes. They can't afford books. They can't afford paper. They can't afford anything. They can't heat the buildings or whatever. And yet, in West Virginia, they're going to spend $600,000 on Dance Dance Revolution. So I wish money I had, well spent. Money I say, well spent. Money well spent. I wish Portland schools could afford that. I, I wish every school could afford it. It's, I wish it, my uh, job, my employer could afford that. And the final story is about an upcoming movie called Stay Alive. It's in production right now. You can go to Wasn't IMDb. Wasn't that already out? Didn't that have like uh, the Saturday Night Fever guy? No, that it? was Staying Alive. Oh, Staying Alive. This is Stay Alive? Stay Alive is a horror movie about video games. And if you go to IMDb.com, you can view the trailer. The idea of this game is there are a bunch of teenagers sitting around, and they're playing a video game that's kind of like Resident Evil. It's a very spooky horror game. And they discover that if their characters die in the game, then they will die in real life. Nice. So the tagline is, don't you get it? If you die in the game, you die for real. Um, <laughs> Sounds a lot like Nightmare on Elm Street meets Jumanji to me. I'm well, so we're all gamers, right? So right. what would we do in that situation? If we were in that situation that the kids are in, where we die in the game, we die for real, how would we cope? What would we do? I'd just save the game and not play anymore. <laughs> that was my thought. I, th I just turned it off. That's I assume that's not good, allowed, though. Because that's that would a pretty be, good solution. I'd get somebody else's save game where they already finished it and start right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, too. I ha from the trailer, they also say something like one in four gamers is addicted. So I'm guessing that part of the plot is that they are so addicted to games that even though they know it could kill them, they're right. going to keep playing. That makes sense. Now, personally, what I would do is I would enter a cheat code into the game and get invincibility, and then I'd get that in real life, too. Oh, that would God be really mode. cool. Yeah. God yeah. mode, yeah. yeah. And the other, thing, or something. the other thing I love about this movie is it's from Endgame Entertainment, and those are the people who made... Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, right. which is I mean, one of the best low-budget movies film right to there. come out in the last few years. It's it's <laughs> yeah. a very very funny movie. It got robbed. It got robbed. So I'm hoping was. that this movie could maybe be something like Oscars, that. But... And one other note is that one of the actresses in this movie is the girl who used to play Anna on the OC. Oh, OC, excellent show. You watched the OC, right? Which I have seen. I have seen some. What's her real name? Uh, her name in real life is something like uh, Samir Armstrong, I think. Yeah. And she's really cute. She's a great actress. I love that character on the OC. Yeah, um, he loves that character on the OC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we live in the real world here. <laughs> All right. So anyway, the movie's called Stay Alive. Um, I might have to go see that. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> stay alive. Stay alive. <laughs> That's just sad. Oh. All right, so welcome to the Retro Respect section. This time, we're really all about Atari, and I guess the main reason for that is that we, we recently saw, we all watched together, we got together and watched the Once Upon Atari DVD, which is one of my favorite DVDs of all time. It's a great movie. I loved it. It really took me back to the, the early days of gaming. Right. I mean, it totally brings me back to when I used to play my VCS or my 2600, and 
And the other thing that is kind of surprising about it, you know, when I bought the DVD initially, I was like, well, this is cool. I'll get to hear about the way the development was and stuff. But what was kind of surprising is that a lot of what they talk about as far as marketing and aspects of software development really rings true for where I've worked throughout my software development career. And it's kind of amazing that it, it kind of transcends Certainly. into Yeah, and for me too. I mean, I think there's there's certain commonalities to being a software developer, at a, especially in a small team, no matter whether you're working on video games or anything else. There's just cert these certain elements of the culture of programmers and the, the cultural divide between programmers and marketing right. and those kind of things. Those things are, are things that we can all relate to. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about the DVD is it's broken up into really four distinct sections. Mm -hmm. Episode one is really about the, the place itself. It's called House of Games, and it really kind of focuses on the early Atari environment. And when we say Atari, we're not talking about the coin-op division. This is purely about the home console, which is the VCS or the 2600, and the programmers that worked on the on the 2600, the main people in the video. And they had a wild culture. Yeah, I mean, no their, their environment was crazy. Yeah, it was totally crazy stuff. crazy. But the cool part about it is, I guess, you know, Nolan Bushnell, and he's prominent in the video as well. He, he kind of focuses on the fact that it may have been a crazy place, but they kind of instilled this sense of family. It was kind of an us-against-them approach, and it brought that unity into the team and developers to develop the games. So, uh, And the interesting thing about it is, unlike games today, that it was really a strong individual contribution by all the people involved in developing the games. It wasn't uh, games by committee. It was really individuals right. that were developing. Back then, you know, those games were basically developed by a single person. And what's kind of crazy about that is when they hired new people, was they, a new hire coming to be like, great, yeah, this is new hire. Uh, here's the manual. Uh, you have six months. Go ahead and create a cool game. And that's basically it. Right, they, they really gave them no direction. They were on their own to do whatever they wanted. That was, yeah, that was their tutorial. A trial by fire. And I can't imagine what some of those people were like that came in and got this 2600 instruction manual and, uh, and had to hack away at the, at the opcodes all day long. One, one thing that's really interesting about the environment is they had these parties, like on Friday apparently, these huge Friday parties. And one thing that was really interesting is the amount of pot that apparently got smoked there at Atari. <laughs> During work at the During desk. work hours, yeah, exactly. Pot among other things, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but I think it was primarily what well, yeah. in the video they focused on pot. Yeah. So one of the better stories in, in that particular episode is when George uh, Kiss, he was the VP of engineering, a group of engineers were smoking pot below and he was having a meeting and the, the smoke had actually gone right into his room and the people in the meeting were like, hey, what's that smell? <laughs> apparently he stopped having meetings after He's, that. Yeah, he had during. to stop having meetings in his office in the yeah. afternoon. It, I guess it wasn't all fun and games because a lot of people apparently had nervous breakdowns. Yeah, there was one guy who apparently wound up in some sort of catatonic state right, they had and, and had breakdown. to be taken off. And, yeah, I mean, it must have been stressful to be put in that environment of like, here's this machine that's very difficult to program for. You're totally on your own. Go make us a cool game. See you in a, in a little while. You know? Well, and it takes a weird person just to do any sort of programming. And you take that <laughs> to game programming, which requires this creative element, this extreme creative element too, and the characters you're going to get are just, it, well, it's demonstrated in the video. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. So episode two focuses more on, I guess, that conflict we talked about earlier that was a marketing versus engineering type battle, which I know as engineers we're all sort of familiar with, where you get these uh, marketing people who essentially have ideas, I guess, but maybe don't present them in the best way, so it's kind of left up to engineering to figure out what it means. And I guess at Atari that seemed to go to sort of an extreme 
where they would come up with these like two-word titles. Like <laughs> right. Well, their their scenario was especially funny to me because the way they tell it, marketing would give them just the title of a game as a the list requirements. Of titles. A list of yeah, titles. Yeah. A list yeah. Of titles. Right. A list and, of titles. And number one was always uh, was a rock fight. Rock fight. Right. Rock fight. Yeah. Which, uh, to me, sounds like a fantastic game. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know why they didn't make it. <laughs> no. That would have been a good game. I'm telling you, Rock Fight would have been a million dollars, but I would have bought it. And so they talked a lot about the fact that there was really no synergy between marketing and engineering. And later they kind of go on into talk about when a lot of the people from Atari left because they weren't really making the money. Atari was making a lot of money. But the developers that were actually developing the games weren't, so they left, and that, that's when you got your Magic and your Activision. One of the funny stories, I guess, was Rob Fulop, who developed Missile Command and Night Driver, among, oh, other, yeah. among other games. And apparently he he'd really worked his, uh, his butt off to get Missile Command done. And it was very popular. A huge hit. I mean, I, I, I still think Missile Command is probably one of the best mm-hmm. 2600 games. I remember playing that game. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was like, you know... It's bonus time. Was it Christmas, I guess? I think it was, it was just before Christmas they were right. going to get their bonuses. And he had very high expectations right. that, you know, with a hit game like Missile Command that he had just created, that he was expecting, you know, some sizable bonuses. I think right. he said he was $10,000, $20,000. Yeah, he was hoping even like for like 30000 maybe. Yeah. Maybe even ten. I thought. It was. Well, he said he would have been satisfied with ten. Right. But he was actually hoping like it might be thirty or something. So apparently he, he got, you know, he got an envelope. So it's probably the bonus, right? And he opened it up, and uh, apparently what it what he got was a certificate for turkey. A gift like. certificate for turkey. Right. And and actually, wasn't there something signed by it Ray Kassar that said, like, uh, thanks for your contribution? Yeah, it looked like an <laughs> achievement certificate that you'd get right. in, a, you know, in school for an award show or something. Right. But, it, yeah, it was a gift certificate for a turkey. So I guess after people from Activision and Magic left than a lot of other programmers at Atari, which, it, you know, is a very skillful position because it was hard to program the 2600, were threatening to leave as well. And so Atari finally did install this uh, incentive-type program where you'd make royalties off your games, and you'd also get 30000 just for releasing a game. And that was, to me, like in the video where it really kind of changed from developers just developing games because they enjoyed developing games and the challenge to making money. And it was kind of a weird transition in the movie. Some of the interesting things that they said about that was like Todd Fry, who is definitely an interesting character to say the least. Yeah. I think that definitely comes out in the video. He made so much money off like Pac-Man that he bought a couple cars. One of his cars started burning on the freeway and he just walked off and left it. Right, because it had become meaningless to him. Like, yeah. he could just buy another one. He had so much money from his royalty. And so, that I mean, there's a lot of stories like that in the video that they focus on. And I think it's just... It's hilarious. It is a very funny movie. I mean, it, it not only is a nostalgic movie, if you remember those games, but it's just it's very, very funny to see these people. And they did a really good job in the movie of actually getting interviews with a lot of the people who worked there and getting them to explain not only their own role, but things that, they, things that, that happened with other people who worked there. And so you sort of got these different takes on the same incident, and it was really, really cool. And I especially like they. I mean, they have a lot of the developers, but they even had like Nolan Bushnell, and then they had that VP of R and D, which I, I really sympathize. Yes, I really sympathized with him because he's definitely not a programmer, so he has a different mindset. But it was clear that he was very sympathetic to his developers that he was managing, and it, it was clear he tried really hard to be a good manager and and be the mediator. And I just I. I 
I thought it was fascinating to see his take on that culture as well, someone who wasn't the same as these crazy people. I'm always fascinated. Every time I watch the video, I find something I didn't see before. So episode three is more focused on the programmers themselves and on the games that they created. So the games back then were simple games. Obviously, you're, you're, you have this machine that can't do a whole lot. And so you basically write these games that you play until, until you die, which today, <laughs> it, you know, you would say, well, Geometry Wars is probably the closest thing that we have to that type of game. But at the same time... But that's time, clearly a throwback. That's clearly right. made to be like old school games. But at the same time, I miss those kind of games. And maybe it's just me. And I think they focus on this a little bit in the video. They say that the games today you can finish in a weekend, and then you never play it again. I mean, there's a lot of games that I enjoyed for that weekend, or for a week, or for a month, or however long it took me, but I really have no desire to go back and play them. In I, games these days, they say, oh, the replayability is you can replay the game and go down a different path to get the ending. But I never, uh, I'm never interested in doing that. You know, Once I come to the ending of a modern game, and that's not to say the modern games aren't great, but once I come to the ending, I'm pretty much done with that game. In, in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. And whereas these old school games, there was no ending. It was just, you play it, and it was a diversion. You could pick it up whenever you wanted, and you could play it over and over and over again. And it was just, it was fantastic. Right, and I, I really like the part where Bushnell talks about that. And he's like, today, it's always about the copy. It's always about the sequel, because people that are in marketing and, and upper management are all about the sure thing. They don't want to take the risk. And back in when they were producing them for the 2600, they had to take the risk. Right. Well, that's just like the movie industry today, which they talk about the video game industry is now as big as the movie industry. But it's whenever the marketing types get involved, they, they're always looking for the sure thing, and they don't want to take the risks on something new right. if they can avoid it. There was a point they brought out about the Pac-Man game where they said that the reason that it didn't have a smooth animation as the arcade version is that it had to fit into 2K. 2K, yeah. A 2K cartridge. Now, for comparison... I went online and I checked this out, and the Google logo that displays on the main Google page is Which over... Which actually isn't a very good logo, Tom. But it's over 10K right. for just the GIF file of the logo. And, and Google's known logo. for keeping their stuff minimal. Yeah, and so think about a game where the code for the game had to be, you know, a, a way smaller than the Google logo But GIF I must file. mention to you, Tom, the Google logo does not flash. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even animate, for no. that matter. Okay, well, yeah. And it doesn't have much replayability. Right. So, well, and, and I always still thought it was amazing. They talk about the, the whole RAM or the, the active memory they had for any of these games was 128 bytes. And just for comparison, I know, and the product I work on in my day job, we recommend our users have a gigabyte of memory, which is 8 that's million... That's only because you don't know how to write code, Woody. <laughs> no, I, that's not my, well, yeah, okay. Okay, given. But it, it, that's 8 million times the size that these games had to work in. And these games had a much more dramatic effect on society than anything I'll probably ever write. And that just blows me away. Well, well I don't know about... Yeah, you're probably right. There's something that they say, I think, during one of the end credit sequences in the DVD, which is that something along the lines of, these are the games that changed our culture. And I never thought of it in quite those terms until I watched this movie, but it's so true. I mean, those games did shape our culture, and in, in many ways they shaped us. The, yeah. We're who we are today because we played those games. And I know I wouldn't even be in the software engineering field <laughs> if I hadn't gotten interested in those games and thought, this is really cool. Well, I know that's the reason I got in the software engineering field is uh, I used to play video games, the arcade games, stand-up games, and one day my dad took me and we bought a 2600, and it was like, wow, 2600's awesome. I remember playing all the games on 2600, 
all the time. So to me, it's it's it did shape my life, and it definitely geared my career path to to doing computers and and programming. And I definitely think there are not that many other cultural things that I could say that about. There's there's no particular piece of music or movie that if that hadn't been made, I would be a different person. But I think a lot of those games, it definitely is the case that those gave me a whole different way of thinking about the world and about what I wanted to do and you know what was possible with computers. So in summary, I think it's a great DVD and that everybody should go pick it up at onceuponatari.com. You can buy it there. I think everybody who's into games should go back and take a look and see what it was like and and you know what the environments especially you know I think it's good for people that play games but it's also really good I think for people that are engineers to realize the the hurdles that these guys went through to yeah. to produce these games. Yeah, fascinating hearing them talk about the hardware they had to use. The fact that there's no frame buffer still blows my mind. You have yeah. to control each scan line individually. So definitely go pick it up. It's onceuponatari.com. All right, so uh, in the last segment we talked about the Once Upon Atari DVD, which is one of my favorite DVDs of all time, and it's my pleasure to introduce Howard Scott Warshaw to the show. Welcome, Howard. Well, thank you a lot, Chris. It's really great to be here. Like I said, we reviewed and discussed uh, Once Upon Atari, which is actually fantastic, and we're all software developers, so kind of cool because I think we can relate to a lot of the topics. Uh, even though you focused on video games, I think it's true through all of like software engineering. To start off with, the video starts with your first day at Atari, and you came to Atari from HP. What had you done previously to prepare working at Atari as far as game programming? Well, interestingly, the uh, most of the training that I had had in college uh, computer-wise, was actually better suited to Atari than it was to working at HP. <laughs> I had had uh, a lot of work with microcomputers and a lot of uh, real-time control programming. And at HP, I was kind of disappointed that I wasn't doing much of that, that it wasn't that demanding. And when I found out that's where it was at at Atari, I just begged them to let me in. I'm assuming that a lot of that came in handy when you were programming on the on the 2600 hardware. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the 2600, you know, nowadays you have single data structures that are larger than the entire program was in, uh, on the 2600. You know, it's kind of absurd <laughs> to think, you know, to have to fit a whole program in one data structure. And that's about the way it comes down. But, you know, the games are actually better now, I think, than, you know, yeah. at least potentially better. I think game design was better back then, but I think game performance and game, you know, impression is much better nowadays. So one thing that I really liked in the movie is that they kept saying that uh, when new hires came on that they gave them like six months and they either like succeeded or they failed miserably, which I thought was really Yeah. Cool. So how were your that, first six months? Well, my first six months were pretty interesting because I was, uh, I was kind of a wild case because the first thing that I did in the first couple of weeks, even though I was a total newbie, was I had already read the manuals and kind of gotten, not not an expert by any means, but I had gotten the basic idea of what the hardware was all about, and my original assignment was Starcastle, so within the first two weeks, I had already sort of rejected my assignment and told them I wanted to rework what it was they were asking me to do, and and they were very cool. You know, they said, okay, you know, I was supposed to do Starcastle, but that's what Yours Revenge was originally assigned right. to be, and I just 
said, you know, this is really going to suck. <laughs> so here is a, it's a vector game on a coin op. You know, to do that on the 2600 is just suicide. So I just said to them, look, I said, I think I've analyzed the gameplay elements in Star Castle that are, that are gratifying. And I said, I think I can repackage them in a different game that's better suited to 2600. And I had only been there a couple of weeks. <laughs> and so, wow. but you got to hand it to them. They were very cool. And, you know, Dennis Coble, the guy who was heading up, uh, the VCS programming right then, he said, okay, you know, go ahead and give it a shot. And within six months, I had essentially uh, what was to be Yars Revenge together on the screen, and people were playing it and digging it. So at that point, they, you know, didn't want to fire me. So, I mean, did they just basically let people go off and do what they wanted as far as developing whatever game in the first six months? Because it sounded like in the movie, it was like, you know, just go do what you want, here's the manual, and have at it. Yes, when I first got there, that's the way it was. There weren't a lot of licensed properties, and even if they were, you know, they didn't care. You know, they just wanted a game to go with it. We were pretty much free. You know, nowadays it's all about limiting risk. Nowadays mm -hmm. people want a game that's just like, you know, whatever other game they have in mind. You know, back then it was all about you need to make something that isn't like what's out there. You want to do something new. Yeah. That's what made it so exciting, you know, so dynamic was it was all about finding the new thing, not about copying the popular thing. And it was just it was just hot and it was exciting. Not everyone's up to it. And yeah. what would happen is, you know, there's two levels of making it, right? There's first you've got to just be able to master the technology and be able to do, you know, real time programming and count seventy six cycles per line and do your real time update of every line. You know, we're actually programming the raster gun at that point. You know, there's no bitmap. So there's that level of technology. And then once you get past that, you still have to make a game. You know, there were people who could program the 2600, but didn't have a concept in terms of, like, what to do to have something be fun, yeah. you know, what to do to make a game. So, you know, basically, you'd, you'd, someone would come in, and just like they say, you'd sit them down with a manual, we'd get them a desk and assign them to a workstation, and they'd start working. And in a few months, you'd be able to tell. It wouldn't take long to tell if they were going to be able to make it technically. Right? Some people, you could just tell by the questions they asked or the fact that there was nothing on their screen after a couple of months. <laughs> you knew they were just dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. And they'd go away. And then of the people who were okay technically, then you'd wait to see what kind of a game they were putting together see what that said or where did that go so e even if it was a, a the name was licensed or some uh based on a movie or something they no one really cared what was in it it was all up to you at that point well early on there really weren't many um uh movie licenses those came like, later. i think i did one of the first ones with uh raiders of the lost ark right you know it just didn't happen the main kind of license thing that was going on early on was coin up you know, it was like copy coin up games. Like my first assignment was to copy Star Castle. You know, right. it was very popular to copy coin up games. But uh, you know, that's a losing proposition from Go anyway. <laughs> so you know, it's just that was you know, and some people liked it. You know, once the royalty program hit, some people really liked the idea of copying coin ups because those usually would have a good audience. To me, it was about doing a cool game. And generally, you know, it wasn't that interesting to copy an existing game. And the idea of copying an existing game when there's no way you're really going to deliver that game is just so dissatisfying. It's right. just so disheartening. 
I just wasn't into it. So are there any good stories of the people who you went to their, you know, desk like after six months and they put together something that was just insane and you were like, uh, no, that's not good or? Um, it actually, it's kind of interesting. It didn't really happen that often that you'd go to someone's desk and say, this isn't quite working out. You're going to have to go. What did happen was people freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, because there was pressure. And as, as the pressure started to increase, you know, as everything got more popular into the 80s, it was like there were times where, you know, you, it wasn't that you'd come back to someone's office after six months and you'd see they just don't have a very good game on the screen. You'd come back to someone's office after six months and they'd be like sitting in the dark, staring in the corner, you know, like almost catatonic. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, that was great in the we, video, by the way. Oh, cool! Yeah, that was that was one of my favorite parts of the video. I gotta yeah. say, two of my favorite parts. There's that and the sprinkler lobotomy. Oh. Yeah. That whole sequence is just. You're the person that's catatonic, right? In the in the video. <laughs> oh, in the video, yes, I am yeah. the one who's doing the catatonic impression right. exactly. And isn't you that can also see the a... screen reflecting off my head? Now, now I think the game that you were working on was Saboteur at the console. There, is there any significance? Very good, very good. That is exactly the game that I was showing. I put that in as a as a Easter egg in Once Upon Atari. All right, I got the Easter egg. <laughs> well, there's another Easter egg in Once Upon Atari. There's actually, you know, how I would have a signature in every one of my games. Yeah. There's an HSW in Once Upon Atari. Well, there's also a Stephen contact me. What? So. Like, hey, Stephen, call me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's totally a thing. I still would like to get an audience with Spielberg. I'm ready. All right. I've got some <laughs> ideas to talk about with Stephen. I haven't talked to him in like over 20 years. There's a couple of things I'd really like to chat with him about. So kind of going on to the development in the 2600 hardware, like the homebrew scene is like big now. And I actually looked into doing development on it and read through a lot of manuals and it was pretty scary. Um, yeah. So uh, it's kind of amazing to me because even now it takes multiple months, like four months to develop a game on the 2600, even though they have new tools and, and faster hardware. So what, what was your development? <laughs> well, I mean, you're still managing like, you know, every line at a time and you don't have Yes, a, you are. You got, I mean, most people think of a game as like a big bitmap and then you have, you know, whatever time you need to go do your game calculation. And then when you want to, you hit the bitmap and you update it and then the screen changes. Right. You know, on the 2600, you have only 25% of every frame for game calculation because 75% of every frame is spent literally in real time updating the raster because if you don't do that, there is no bitmap. If you're not there programming the raster as it's going across the screen, you don't get an image on screen. <laughs> so, so you don't have much room to play with, and you have to time out your code. You have to count cycles because you need to get the most you can in it, and you can't miss a line or you'll get glitches and bugs on the screen. So it's really time-critical and yeah. space-critical programming. And even though they have better tools and stuff, you know, the reason I giggle is because, you know, yeah, so here we are 20 years later, and people with better technology, with everything they're going, and 20 years of experience and documentation to draw on, still take four or five months to do a game. Yeah. Okay, it just cracks me up because I did E.T. in five weeks, and whatever else people want to say about it, that was a start-to-finish done game in five weeks. Yeah, without the new tools. I mean, it's kind of cool now. You can just go right into the assembly and, and, and change stuff, and it still takes that amount of time. So I'm amazed that it only took you five weeks to do ET. Right. Well, I could go right into the assembly, too. What I had to do was find the, find the address and start working in the hex. 
and just I'd just tweak uh, op code. So, like, if you were to make code changes, could you just make the change and start it up right again, or was there a delay? Because I know I talking to the Coinot people, they had a. Oh you know, no, it was like it was right away. Off. Okay. You don't have to go through a whole formal build process and right. stuff like that. What we would do, or what I used to do, is I would just go and patch changes in. I would right. literally type hex code into the memory, you know, where I wanted it at the right address to test my stuff. And if that was okay, then I'd make some notes and I would later put it in the assembly code and reassemble. <laughs> but I mean, even to do an assembly cycle was pretty quick. It's not like building a game now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's murder. So were the, I know that like in uh, in Yars Revenge, you, you had some cool tricks that you used. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There was, there was some cool stuff in Yars Revenge. You know, my one of my things in Yars Revenge was to really establish myself with my game. So I wanted to have a lot of firsts, things that had never been done before. And that happened on two levels. Actually, on three levels in some ways, if you want to look at it. Because it happened on uh, technically approaching the machine. It happened on game features that were put in that just hadn't been in anything before. And it also happened on the level of, you know, a product, as a video game is a product. So what I mean by that is, like, things on a, on a pure technical level. Um, there were techniques that I had developed in terms of playing with the stack. And, you know, we had talked about this as programs and stuff, the idea of to save time, you would actually, before you'd get on screen, you'd move your stack pointer to point at the processor. Right, That's I've so, seen that even on the, on the people who are doing the homebrew, they talk about that. Right, and that's a sweet thing, so that you can, you can do a status check, and you can just uh, push the status values, and it just so happens that, you know, some of the preferred status values <laughs> will hit the right bits in the register if they're set appropriately. And it's just a great shortcut. Another thing that's interesting about Yars Revenge is that it's the only cart in, I think, history that actually shows you the code on screen. Right. Because it turns out the, I wanted a cheap way of randomizing data to do the ion zone yeah. as a graphic. And so what I did was I just put a pointer into the code area on the cart and started shoving those into both the graphics register and the color register for playfield. And that's how the ion zone is done. That's how it gets the glittery color thing and all that. It's just basically code is, is fairly randomized bits, you know. And yeah. so it's randomizing both the graphic and the color just by indexing into my code. And it's actually showing the code on screen. You know, that's kind of cool. And then having a death sequence, having a full screen explosion, having... Uh, uh, a more elaborate use of sound than I think most people had used. Because yeah. I'm coming to games from the point of view of not just engineering technically, but from filmmaking aesthetically. And one of the things that I always kind of had a real appreciation of is how much sound is used in movies to save money. You know, you see people look to their left and you hear a, a yeah. big whistle go off and yeah, you exactly. go, oh, well, they're on a pier and there's a ship there. But they don't have to show you the ship. So it's the same kind of thing. Like in Yars Revenge, I, I actually was, instead of just having a little pop every time someone does something, I had background sounds and I had status sounds so that whether or not people were aware of it consciously, you could definitely, the game was telling you what's happening at a subliminal level because of the way the sounds were programmed to do that. So yeah, that was kind of intense. One thing that kind of amazed me is, I guess I read this somewhere, I don't think it was in the video, but the actual code that's being displayed, I guess marketing thought that that was a big risk. 
Yeah, yeah, I did get so I got some crap about that and the Easter eggs. And that was the yeah. other thing. I was not the first one by any means to put a put a signature in a game, but I was the first one to get it approved by marketing because I convinced them that Easter eggs were a valuable thing to have in games as opposed to a liability. And but uh, the idea of, that I was using the code to do the ion zone, you know, and it was actually, you know, this was the code that was being grabbed from random locations, exactly. and it was counter scrolling over each other. And, you know, you know, I, I challenged any marketing person to sit down with a pencil and paper and try and extract the bits, you know, to see, you know, if they could actually start to write down the code. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, no one was able to do that. It's funny that it's, they uh, thought that that would be an issue. Well, I mean, technically, legally, it probably is an issue because, you know, if you're displaying your code on the screen, you don't really have, you know, you're losing some aspect of your copyright to it. But that's only if people can read the code on the exactly. screen. Exactly. And, uh, you know, this was definitely not disassembled code that was scrolling along on the screen. Yeah. You know, just uh, it was just colorful dashes here and there, and uh, no one was really able to decipher the programming from it. So, uh, Yard's Revenge was the, the highest-selling Atari-produced VCS title, is that correct? Oh, no, no, but it was one of the highest-selling original titles. That's what I meant, original titles, yeah. So, what, Absolutely. Were, some your, what were some of your other firsts? Because I know there were, like, several of them. With Yard's Revenge? No, just in general. I know that, like... Or in general? Were, yeah. I had a lot of firsts. I mean, with, just with Yard's, it was the first game that ever had reset from the joystick, so you didn't have right. to go to the base unit to restart the game. That's, that's the insane first, that, that yeah. people didn't have that before. It's totally insane. And it's also the first game with a pause mode. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whenever you kill the code tile and you get the score thing, you can let it sit for as long as you want and come back to it later. So it actually had a pause built into it, which no one else had ever had. It had a uh, approved uh, signature yeah. in the game. And the signature itself was also a key to another first in the game, which was the storyline, because Yara's Revenge was the first game that really had an elaborately developed backstory. It was the first game that ever came out with a comic book associated with it. And I actually wrote the story behind the game just to sell the name. It was the first game in which engineering outmarketed marketing in terms of naming it. Yeah, I love that story. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic story. I don't know if you want to go into that now or not. If you want to, that's great. I mean, I think it's a great story. Well, the, the story is that basically when it was time to name games at Atari, marketing would show up with a list of, you know, basically randomly selected pairs of action words. You know, it would be a noun and a verb or something, you know, like noun and an adjective. Like rock fight? Like rock fight, you know. <laughs> Flamethrow, Race World. <laughs> it just, you know, just be these ridiculous things. And I really wanted the name to be cool, you know. So I thought, okay, I better think about this and come up with an idea behind it. And I came up with the idea of doing a story because that always makes something stronger. And I thought, how am I going to hook all this together? And then what I did was I came up with the idea of making. Uh, uh, the word Yar, which is Ray spelled backwards, and Razak, which is the solar system where it's set, is Kazar spelled backwards. So I found a way to work the name of the CEO into the title. And so, because the original title was Yarian Revenge of Razak 4. <laughs> and that got shortened to Yar's Revenge, probably wisely so. Yeah. But, so what happened was, you know, I talked to a marketing dude, the product manager, and I said, hey, is there, you know, have they picked a name yet for the game? He's like, no, not yet. I said, can I submit something? He goes, sure. I said, he goes, there's still a day or two left. So I stayed up all night that night 
at stayed there at the office and just wrote this like seven page story. Well, that became the basic story of Yar's Revenge about the mutated flies and how that all came to be and what's going on. And so I and I wrote the story just to make the name stronger. I figured a name and a story is stronger than just a name. And I gave it to the marketing guy, and he went in and he submitted it. And the next day, I see this product manager, and this is when I put the hook in. You know, and I just said to him, I said, "Hey, I said, uh, so is it was my package in there under submission?" He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I said they made a choice yet?" He goes, "No." So I said, "Okay." I said, "Listen, you want to know a secret?" <laughs> He's like, yeah. And I swore him to secrecy like three times. I said, look, you have to promise you will not tell anyone about this. You got to go because I don't want this to unduly influence the naming. And he goes, oh, I won't tell anybody. So when I swore him down three times, I figured then I was sure that he would tell everyone. Yeah. So I told him, I said, you know, you know, Yar, you know, the Yars are in. He's like, yeah. I said, well, what's that backwards? And he's like, uh, Ray. And I said, you know, the Razak? You know, yeah. I said, what's that? He's like, uh, Kazar. He goes, oh my God, Ray Kazar? And I go, yeah. He goes, does Ray know about this? And I go, well, of course Ray knows about this. I said, that's why I don't want you to tell anybody because, you know, I don't want it to influence anything. And so he goes, okay, and I won't tell anybody. So I knew he was going to run right back to marketing and tell everybody. Yeah. You know, and I also knew no one would talk to Ray because that wasn't the way marketing people behaved. And it's a good thing, too, because Ray didn't know anything about it. You know, I totally made this up. And like the next day, the guy comes saying, he goes, guess what? He goes, we're going with Yarns Revenge. I said, oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> it was just, it was just such a funny story. And then like months later at a press event, I actually saw Ray Kazar. And he comes up to me and uh, he goes, I heard about that little uh, game fold with the naming on the, on the game. I said, oh, I said, yeah. I said, did you like that? And he goes, uh, he goes, you know, keep making games. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very cool moment. Yeah. But that was always a fun story. So there was a first. You know, that was, yeah. you know, there was a lot of things that I did with Yours Revenge that changed the way a lot of people approach development, I hope. You know, and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, that game was a first in the sense that I, I truly believe that's the biggest game that was ever done on the uh, VCS. Now, I mean, there are games that, quote, have more screens, but I don't think there are games that have more truly fundamentally different screens, more gameplay, more secrets, more hooks. You know, it was a pretty full-blown adventure game, and that game took me, like, over 10 months oh, wow. to program. You know, Yars took about six months and then tweaking for a while. You know, Raiders took a long time. Yeah, do. Raiders was a great budget. game. Oh, thank you. The only thing I couldn't get used to was the multiple joysticks. That took me a bit. Well, there was another first. You know, all, not all the firsts are brilliant. <laughs> but I just kept thinking about how to deal with it, and I decided that you know it was more important to enable the player to have more than one thing because if you just if you just go with the joystick in general motion, yeah, it's hard to allow a player to have more than one object. Then you just when you walk over one object, you drop another one. Yeah, exactly. there's no joystick function you could use to drop an object. So. Because I want the controls to be simple. So I ended up going with the two controller configuration, which was another first. You know? I mean, but, I think you know. it was essential, but it just was a little hard to, to navigate. But I think it was definitely better than putting it on the console, which I guess was probably another option. Putting actually yeah, I didn't like that idea at all. That was, And I figured it's a single-player game, so why not use everything that's available to you? Because right. when you have a single-player game, 
you can use both joysticks for that thing. It's just, it's weird to play with two joysticks. No, yeah, it's, it was just different. But it was, what it did do was it made the play of the game more physical in a way. Yeah. And so, and like I say, I, it may well be that that was not a very good choice. But, you know, to me, that was the only practical way to approach doing a game that was as big as I was trying to make this game. No, and it was and so, huge for a 2600 game in terms of, like, just when you played it, it felt like a big game. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I'm really, it's really cool to hear stuff like that, because, like, you sit in a, an office for literally a year or two, just sitting there, just hoping something's going to work. You never know. And I'll tell you something that's very interesting that I discovered when making a, um, there's, there's a fundamental difference between making adventure games and action games, Okay. But to me, the way I look at it is the difference is that, I mean, as a game designer, the big difference is that as, as a designer in an action game like Yars Revenge or something, you can have the same experience that a player does. So you can gauge and tune your game and know that you're making accurate decisions because you are genuinely able to experience the game just like any player would. You know, and I truly believe that in any well-designed action game, the uh, the designer should have no edge over any other experienced player in an action game. If they do, then that's bullshit design, I think. You just shouldn't go that way. But think about an adventure game. The whole idea of an adventure game is puzzle solving and discovery and stuff like that. So when you're trying to design a game like that, the one thing you know at the onset is you will never, ever, ever be able to experience this game. You have to create a game that you can never test. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. And it's just, and it's interesting. I, I, I think it's interesting. You know, it was just an interesting difference. And, and I tended to prefer action games because I <laughs> like gaming. So I like creating something that I can enjoy. And you just can't do that with an action game because you can only project. You have to project in your mind what the experience is going to be and gauge that. And it's, it's just harder to do, I think. I totally get what you're saying, though. I mean, experiencing an action game, everybody's on the same playing field. Exactly. Another question I had is, uh, in the video, I, I thought one of the interesting parts was when the developers, a lot of the developers left, obviously, they went to Activision and some went to a Magic. Uh, right. Atari started their royalty plan. And yeah. In the video, they focused a lot, or you f focused a lot on the people that uh, went to the banks with their huge checks, which I thought was just awesome. But it seemed to really change people. Uh, how did it change you? That's a good question, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's really hard. It's like doing an adventure game. You know, how can I tell how it changes me? I'm me. You know, it's like, I think, I think I got a little carried away. Probably. I hope I didn't get as carried away as some people that I saw. There, was, <laughs> there were some people who went nuts. People who went nuts literally just working there. Some people whom the money really kind of changed their personality. There were some people who didn't change much at all, you know, and, you know, I hope I was like, didn't change as much, but it changed my expectations. You know, it's amazing. You know, people always say, you know, well, if I had a lot of money or if I was getting a lot of money, I'd do this or I'd do that. And, you know, whatever people say when that's, when they're talking about that, it's all baloney. It's all baloney <laughs> because once it actually happens, that's when you find out what's really going on and all the imaginings and everything you projected and everything you, you wished, you know, could be that way. When it actually happens, you never know. All bets are off, right? <laughs> because, you know, some people follow through exactly with what they thought they would do. Some people turn incredibly around. You know, I was a little more close to the vest, a little more secretive about the stuff that was going on. 
because I just wasn't that comfortable discussing that, you know, openly with other people. Some people ran around flashing things in other people's faces. Yeah, it sounded like that. You know, which to me, that was, I didn't think that was very cool. To me, that's just not how I would behave. One way it changed me was I definitely started to do more coke. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely say that. And that led me to see some sides of myself that I didn't particularly enjoy, and that led me fairly directly to let go of coke. Okay. So, I mean, I never would have been able to afford that experiment that I engaged in. Yeah, that part wasn't in the video. They they focused more on pop, but Coke was a trickier kind of a thing. (laughs) And uh, we did. I did have stories. One story that I don't. I don't think this one actually went well. There were some stories that I put in episode three that were just stories that hadn't been anywhere else. And I think I got a little freer with that one. There was, you know, there's the story of there was a time it was actually they don't they don't say in the video which office it was, but it was my office. You know, they were being kind to not mention that. But it was in my office, there were a number of people, and one of the guys who was like one of the dealers, you know, who was bringing stuff in, had like an eighth ounce of Coke. And so we're looking at it on the bindle, and he pops the paper accidentally. Like all this Coke like flies up in the air and falls down on the corner of my desk and on the carpet. And so... What happened was, like, suddenly everybody, like, grabs some straws, and people are just, like, all over my desk and on the carpet, you know, and me, too. And we're all just snorting this stuff up. It was just, it was this melee. It got to be this really, you know, and it's, like, moments like that, and you'll stop, and you'll look around, and you'll think, holy shit, you know? It's like, if somebody would have told me that I would be on my knees on the floor with a straw up my nose trying to pull something out of the carpet, you know, I would have thought they were crazy. And yet, I can't really think about this too much because i got to try and get some. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that kind of a situation, seeing yeah. stuff like that, that makes you think, you know, I don't think I really want to be in this situation. I love the video in that part, especially when uh, Todd Fry left his car on the freeway burning and just walked off. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Fry is quite a character. Yeah, I mean, that came out in the video. That's totally he is character. an amazing character. Yeah, I've known Todd for a long time, and he is still an amazing character. <laughs> you know, so, and uh, But that, that's the thing that I think really comes through in Once Upon Atari is that what this was was an amazing collection of characters. I mean, you look at people like Rob Fulop and Rob Zadibble, Todd Fry and me and Jim Heather and <laughs> Carla Meninsky. You know, you see people like this and then and you get people like Larry Kaplan coming back forth in and out. And this is something that's launched by someone like Nolan Bushnell. And you can see like this history, this connective history of personality, of extreme personality. And the thing that really marked uh, the fact that things were kind of going downhill at Atari was not anything in the financial reports or stuff like that. But there was a point in time, and we all could see it, where suddenly the people we were hiring, they weren't as cool as the people we had. It just started to kind of drop off. You know, you see people like Jerome Demurit and Alan Murphy, you know, and you had people like Eric Mangus, you had some very interesting people and engaging. And it's not just that they're capable and can do work and do things like that. These people are so stimulating to work with and to talk with. So it wasn't just what they could do. It's what they could inspire in the other people around. I was going to say, I think that's totally true in a lot of industries. I know where Woody and I have worked. We've seen that happen as well, you know, where you have a core group of people that just really get along and have this 
flamboyant type personalities. And then as you start bringing other people in, it just kind of goes away. It's hard to recapture that. Totally. And, you know, in some ways, it's a very natural process because as you try to grow and you need to get more people, you can't maintain a super high threshold for people you bring in or you just won't find them in time. But by the same token, it starts to dilute the pool and it starts to change the environment. You know, you're playing with a very delicate balance and it just sort of tips. <laughs> you could see it. After a while, you could see that people weren't as excited, these new people. They weren't joining the fold. They weren't coming in and bringing their own kind of neurotic, you know, eccentricity in a positive way. Was that after the incentive program was, was in place? That started right around the same time frame. There were a number of things that were very complex that were going on. I mean, I did once upon Atari because what was going on there, what happened at Atari behind the scenes with the game designers, for all of us who were there, for all the game designers who were there like in the very early 80s and late 70s, this was the most amazing and most intense experience of any of our lives. I mean, it just—it was just unbelievable, and you knew nothing else was ever going to be that way. And so, I always knew that someday I wanted to tell that story. A lot of us want to tell that story, but I decided to go to school and become a video producer to tell a story because <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it to me. Because it was really—I needed to do this. And when I first had the concept for Once Upon Atari, what I was thinking about mostly was episodes one and two. Now, I did episode four first, and the reason I did that was not to be like George Lucas, although do worse. <laughs> I, um, and I don't know why I wound up episode four, but I mean, I wanted to do one episode, and that was the episode I could do the quickest. You know, and, but technically, I didn't have the equipment to really deliver the episodes the way I wanted to do. So I wanted to make one episode, and that was the absolute nuts and bolts tech stuff that I knew a lot of people were interested in and wanted to do. And I figured the people who were most interested in those particular details might not be as sensitive to video form and, and video quality as uh, people who are more fans of other subject matter might be. Because they're getting the meat of what they want. And that's what I wanted to deliver. And I wanted to also sell some of those to try and finance doing the other episodes. So after some of that, then I finally got a nonlinear system and was able to really start doing it. And that's when I sat down and did the first two episodes. Episodes one and two, which is what the environment was. And episode two was really, this is uh, the enemy within. Right, yeah. And that's the episode that's about the real conflict. That's about the infighting between management and marketing and engineering and how the engineers kind of turned into monsters themselves at uh, when the money hit and when things started to go and the eccentricities. It was... That was just, that was the story. That's what I was all about when I was thinking of this thing. When I finally finished those episodes, I just felt really good. Yeah, those are my, about, definitely my favorite episodes. Yeah, that's cool. I relate to it the most. Interesting, yeah. And in some ways, for all the changes the industry's been through, it's not that different. And that's kind of sad. <laughs> it's cool in some ways, but it's sad in more ways, I think. What happened between the home and the coin op sides? Because I don't really hear a lot about that, but I've like I've gone to the conferences like California Extreme and stuff, and you get kind of different sides of the coin op versus the home. Was there true animosity? There was animosity between some people, I think is a more accurate way to put it. There were some people, there were people in coin op like Dave Toyer and Owen Rubin who were like wonderful people, and there was never, I don't think, a problem with them, although there were some people who had problems with 
like there were some engineers on both sides of the fence that would kind of get out of line attitude-wise, and nobody liked that. Sometimes that got blown up into a full on, oh, we hate each other, there's this big competition or big rivalry. And I don't think it was really about that. What it was, was, you know, in the beginning, you know, after the earth cooled, you had, <laughs> you had this thing where, you know, CoinOp was making a lot more money. The CoinOp engineers were making a lot more money. And we all felt, you know, well, they're making better games. You know, and it's not that we weren't capable of making good games. But, I mean, when you're working on the VCS versus, you know, state-of-the-art, you know, hardware for each new project, you know, you should be doing much better games with the state-of-the-art hardware every time. <laughs> if you're not, you're really blowing it. <laughs> so they were doing some really good stuff. But they had a bonus plan, and we didn't. Oh, okay. Okay. But by the same token, you know, economics tends to drive all this stuff. And by the same token, early on, coin-out machines were making more money than the home games were. But then the home games took off. Suddenly, the big money was coming in from the home game. And Atari still didn't want to pay that money out. But that's why Imagic formed. That's why Activision formed. Right? Because they didn't want to share the wealth. If they would have thrown a little bit of money at the engineers early on, they could have saved themselves literally tens to hundreds of millions of dollars later. Been in business much longer than they were. But, you know, greed kills. That's the lesson of video games. When you're trying to go the extra few points, that's when you get killed. You know, it's just, and it's so true. And so, as the, as the, now, the coin-op had this kind of ascendancy thing going. I mean, a lot of people felt, well, we make better games, we make more money, coin-op is just better. You know, a lot of people would buy into that. Now, not all the people did, and I was very friendly with some coin-op programmers, and I don't think we ever had a problem. Okay, but what did happen was, it wasn't that we, they didn't like us or we didn't like them, but, you know, we wanted a little more money, and then when it became clear that, companies were forming and we had opportunities to leave and make much more money because the money was there. And then Atari had to turn around and instead of losing their entire stable of programmers, needed to start paying them. And so they did. And when they did that, now suddenly the VHS people, the VCS people, not VHS, VCS people were making more money than the coin-op people were. So that kind of pissed them off. And I can understand why, because it's like, they're making better games. You know, they're making better games, and they're not making as much money. It was probably frustrating. By the same token, it's not a question of how good your game is, you know, from a business standpoint. It's a question of how profitable your product is. And as the home games became more profitable as product, the people who were making the more, the more profitable products started to collect a lot more money. And so that got kind of funky for a while, and then they reworked the deal for CoinOps, so they started to make more money. And, you know, and that was good for like a year. Then Atari blew up, you know, so dust to dust. Now, going from that to something that you're uh, known for as much, but it's not as, as good as E.T., I guess we'll focus on that for a second if you want to. Sure, no problem. So sometimes it's mentioned as like one of the worst games of all time. And I just want to say yeah. like before we, we talk about that, I don't think that's true. I actually went back and played it just the other day, like a couple of days yeah. ago, and I thought it was fine. Well, and I thank thought it was you. actually a fun game. Uh, there were issues with the holes a little bit, but uh, totally. But uh, it was only when I tried to get out and then I fell back in that it bothered me. It didn't bother me initially falling in them. Yeah, um, I didn't have the time to tweak that out the way I should have. You know, it sold yeah. a million, million copies. So why do you think it's like gets this tag of being like one of the worst games of all times if it's a million seller? Eh, it's a scapegoat. You know, I mean, 
it sold a million even after return. So it's hard to look at it as a real failure. And I think it is a complete full game. And there's a level at which you say, you know, for a game that's so bad, we're still talking about it, right? I mean, everybody still talks about the E.T. game. There are a lot of other games that nobody ever talks about anymore. So, you know, it's like, was it a failure? I mean, Atari managed to lose money on that game by paying $22 million for the license, and then they printed up four or five million cards first run, which was a bit much. And so they turned something that was a million seller into a thing. And, you know, and I contributed because I didn't do a game that four million people wanted to buy and own at 44 bucks a shot. You know, but I mean, I think, I think E.T. becomes the scapegoat because it's an easy thing to point to and it's a high-profile thing. But, you know, I think what killed Atari was overbuilt expectations. And E.T. was just another in a series of products after Pac-Man and so many right. others where people were getting tired of being promised a coin-op game and getting not the coin-op game. When you promise them movies, you know, people have big expectations and they don't even know what. At least when you promise them a coin-op game, they know what they're expecting, that you're not going to (laughs) deliver. When you promise them a movie, all they think is, wow, this is going to be great, but I don't know what it is. I don't know either, and I have to make it. You know, but then again, you know, there's an aspect of this where E.T. is always singled out as one of the worst games of all time. And it was a huge technical achievement for me to actually deliver a game that is playable and is okay, and there are some people who like it. And that was done in five weeks, which was amazing. You know, nobody had ever done a game in less than four or five months, and people still don't do games in less than four or five months. And that's another first. So it was the fastest game ever done for the VCS, probably. Now, why was was that... Uh, five weeks. I mean, why wasn't that? Why didn't you get the usual four or five months for that? Well, because it took them into the very end of July to finish the deal, and they didn't want anybody working on the game until they finished the deal. Apparently, <laughs> also they didn't tell us they were working on the deal, so nobody knew. I certainly right. suspected it, and I had done Raiders, so I figured I was like probably in line for it. But you know, when when it hit. So they said, okay, we need the game, and here we go. And they have to have it for September 1st because they didn't want to miss Christmas. They figured the, the product has much less value if you can't make Christmas with it. And to make Christmas in production, you have to have the done game handed over to reproduction by September 1st. <laughs> so they wait till July 25th to close the deal, and you've got till September 1st to do the game. So that's a little over five weeks. Yeah, wow. So that's so, how it happens. It's insane. But I got to tell you that, you know, the idea, there's a thing that I love about the fact that everyone calls, I, I don't really believe E.T. is as bad as people like no, to think of I it don't. as. But in, on some levels, I love it that it's there because E.T. is almost always in the worst game of all time lists. And Yars Revenge is almost always in the that's best true. games of all time lists. So the way I figure it is, I have the greatest range of any designer <laughs> in history, you know, so I'm very happy about that. So E.T., they, a lot of times, even when they talk about outside of Atari, the crash in the 80s, that E.T. kind of led to that. But uh, what do you think were the major factors in, in the crash, um, assuming that you don't think it was E.T.? I don't think, I mean, I think the major factors in the crash were a lack of understanding of product life cycles. Okay, that's number one. The first thing that sets it up is the idea that Atari had been milking the VCS for a long time. And because of that, they held up the introduction of the 400-800 computer. Most people are aware that you know the 400-800 computer, which was ready to go in the very early 80s, around 1980, 
or 81, certainly. And that would have been a far superior game machine to anything that was out there. Atari purposely did not release it as a new game machine because they didn't want to interrupt the cash flow from the VCS. So they tried to extend a pre- you know, nowadays people, you know, let a base unit go a certain number of years and then you start the next generation. Because people now, they understand life cycles. This was the first life. So, you know, in the first life, it's hard to understand life cycles. Right. Customers didn't understand it either. Right. Nobody did. So, so there was that. Then there was overbuilt expectations. Atari sold everything like this was going to be the be all and end all of all time, even when they absolutely dead flat knew it wasn't true. You know, they were willing to tell the big lie, you know, the customer on a regular basis. But customers get it after a while. Another thing is they were brutal with their distributors and the people who depended on them for product. You know, and they were getting to a point where when they had a hot product coming down the pipe, they would force uh, distributors to buy old, you know, stale product to get the new hot product. And so when things started to turn, anyone who had the opportunity stuck the knife in and twisted it on Atari because they had felt so screwed from the way they had been handled. You know, and then, you know, you throw it on top of that, the idea, and one of the main things that was going on is like, you know, think of Ray Kazar. Pretend you're Ray Kazar. Put yourself in his shoes, okay? So you're a guy who is a classic style manager who, you know, has been heading this textile company, doing very nicely, and then Warner picks you up and puts you in charge of this company called Atari, which is this newfangled technology stuff that you don't really know anything about. But what the hell, you know, you'll sell it. It's a product. And and it's got this whole new kind of line worker, right? You know, it's got these programmer type guys who aren't, they're, you know, on an org chart, they're in the same place as like line workers would be. I think they're towel designers, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're prima donna towel designers. And that's the thing. And so, you know, we don't really need to worry about them. And But here's what happens. Or here's the thing that's kind of sad, because I kind of felt bad for Ray on some levels. Not too bad. But, you know, the thing is, if you're Ray Kazar, Nolan Bushnell creates this product. And no one, including Nolan, knows how big this is going to be. But the product is made. It's set. You're starting to market it. If Nolan would have had any idea what he was sitting on, he would not have sold for only $22 million, Right. So, but I don't think it was Atari's brilliant marketing that turned around and made the thing take off. This was a product that was a new technology at the right time. It was what everybody wanted. And when it hit, it took a little while to get going. But when it went, it went big. So, and it, and I think it was a total blind coincidence that Ray Kazar gets installed just at the turning point. It was just at the last moment that right. people couldn't really see it was going to take off, but I think it was going to take off regardless. Okay? So, but think about it from Ray's point of view, and think about it from Warner's point of view. So, Warner gets, buys the place from Nolan, kicks Nolan out, puts in Ray Kazar, and bam! It takes off. So, Ray is a genius. The people who hired Ray are geniuses. You see what I'm saying? And then, yeah, no, I totally get it. You know, and then you get to the board meeting at the end of the year, and they call Ray up, and he's standing in front of them. They go, Ray, you did a heck of a job. Here's your $1 million bonus. And what's Ray going to do? He's going to say, oh, I really didn't do anything. No, he's going to sit there, and he's going to go, thank you very much. And then, so he is basically 
viewed as the focal point, as the person who made this happen. But he doesn't know anything about what he's doing. Okay? It's the right place, right time, like it was for most of us. So then things turn around and start to fail, partially because they made the conscious decision to not try and introduce other technologies, and so they created a large technological gap between what they could produce into the market and what was there. And when things started to turn around, they, they turned to Ray and said, Hey, Ray, <laughs> you're the genius who got this whole thing going. Fix it. You know, and he didn't know anything about how he made it work, so how is he going to be able to fix it? So he's got to feel pretty bad in a situation like yeah. that. But, you know, the bonus money probably softened the blow. Yeah, I would And then, so. you know, then he gets involved with the SEC because he sells some stock short just 15 minutes, you know, before they yeah. announce. You know, here's, here's the quintessential example of Atari's business practices. In Magic, you know, I knew Rob Fulop and Bob Smith. Remember the guys at Magic? And there was a day, late in 82, when Imagic was going to go public, you know, IPO. This was before all the dot bombs and all that stuff. This was it. These guys were all set to become multimillionaires. It was the day before they're going to go. It's all set. It's all done. They're just waiting to get rich. It's a beautiful moment for them. So Atari is not due to release their financials for this quarter, for the end of 82, for another six or seven weeks. Okay, I mean, there's still plenty of time before it's supposed to be released. And it's bad news. It's real bad news, because this is the first <laughs> glimpse that Atari's had that things are turning around and are going to fall apart. So what Atari does is they release, you know, companies never do this. Companies never release their numbers early. Atari leaked their information the day before a Magic's IPO so that the industry would see that the profits weren't miraculous and everything was turning around, and it shut down the IPO. My friends, who were sitting there smoking the big cigars, and they are all ready to go, and it just got pulled out from under them. Imagine people like that doing business, and then imagine that the people who they've been doing stuff like this to over years got a chance to screw them back. Okay. Yeah. That, I think, is really explains the video game crash. Yeah. Speaking of the video game crash, now a lot of people today are talking about there might be another video game crash with today's generation of games. What do you think about that? And what do you think, if it does occur, what are going to be the primary factors? Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I think, so. think that video games have stabilized and matured as a market. And what happens is you get times where people get overly optimistic and you see more companies open and you see a lot of people trying to run ventures, and then you start seeing a lot of failures, and you see people falling out, and you see a lot of layoffs, which is very common in the industry, right? But if you think about it, you see, you see a lot of openings and closures. That's uh -huh. sort of like noise around the edge. And at the center, you have like your activists, your EAs, you have these bastions of game making, and they're just monoliths, and they're moving forward, and they're putting out reasonable games, and they're updating their hardware bases, and it's moving forward. So I don't think the game business is bigger than the movie business. I mean, on a dollar basis, you know, right. it's been true for a while, and that's like, not many people realize that. People are always talking about the game industry collapsing, and they don't realize that it's bigger than the movie industry. Yeah, it I mean, it's yeah. a huge industry. It just doesn't get the same kind of press and exposure. You know, I think that basically the game industry is not going to crash 
and in some ways it's kind of a shame. <laughs> because <laughs> because the game industry has been, in order to be this stable, they've gotten a lot less creative. And I'm not saying there's no creativity, but the name of the game now is not to put out an exciting new product. The name of the game is to not fail and to make your dollar back. And that generates a different kind of development that I think is not as exciting. Do you, what do you think about some of the new things that are happening? And, uh, like, I don't know if you've seen it, but, like, Xbox Live Arcade, they're putting a lot of games that are kind of retro in nature, like Geometry Wars, which is like a Tempest slash Robotron hybrid, which is very, very popular. I mean, it's more popular than a lot of the you know, huge games that are coming out. Oh, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant because what will happen with gaming, and I really believe that GTA, the Grand Theft Auto, is going to stand in, when we look back for another 10 or 15 years, and we look back at what happened with gaming, we're going to see GTA as, a, as not like a great game for its time, but a, full, a, a transition. It's a changing of the right. guard. Because I think the GTA is one of the, I don't think anybody has really known what to do with 3D gaming. Right. I think people just kept making 2D games in 3D. And GTA is one of the first real immersive games, I think, right. that really succeeded and worked. And so I think what you're going to see is that going into these immersive, real-time VR kind of games, you know, that's where it's going to be. Like, look at how intense um, people are with Counter-Strike, you know, and yeah, Half-Life exactly. before that and Doom before that. You know, this kind of immersive, you know, I'm involved and I can play as a team kind of games, those are huge. Yeah. Because I mean, from the time I first had any concept of a video game, when I, this is like back in 1978, yeah. when I was in a calculus class, I had my first concept for a video game. And basically, the thing is that a computer, a video game is not about a human playing a computer. I think video game in its highest form is about a human playing a human, and the computer is facilitating. It's providing the environment. Okay, so... Gaming is going to shift. It's not going to crash. It's not going to disappear by any means. But I think gaming is going to migrate from a player and a joystick to a player and an interactive world. And, and that is what's happening, I think, with a lot of these kind of things. We're starting to see people who are finally getting it, who are starting to really deliver that immersive world experience. And this is going to lead to things that have been forecast in movies over the last two decades. Right. Yeah, that's what's kind of crazy. You know, it's like the movies you used to watch where they had these total immersive environments. You're like, well, that's not really a video game if you were on the note. But now it's actually becoming a reality. It is. And pretty soon you're going to have sensory feedback. Yeah. You know, and you know where that's going to go. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to go, you know, to the, you know, the... The uh, cyber strip club and stuff is going to become a very real and intense experience. Here's my my total vision of the future, if you're ready for this. No, I'm totally ready. <laughs> it's not that the society is going to crash games. What's going to happen is games are going to crash society. You know, you're, you've seen it already with, like, EverQuest and some of that stuff. Is, you know, there's people who stay home and miss work because they, they're too involved in the game. Yeah, I think Woody does that, actually. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea on an individual basis, but the thing is, right now, you have, it's a fringe thing. You know, like, you have, like, you know, a tenth of a, of a hundredth of one percent of the population might do that sometimes. But think of a world that we live in in which maybe 20 or 25 percent of the working force is so into this sensual game experience that they're undergoing 
that they get addicted and they yeah. don't want to stop. And you lose, you know, 20 to 25% of your GNP on a regular basis because everybody's literally playing games. Well, I can only hope that happens. You know? <laughs> well, not even so, just but, work. I've heard about, uh, like, I've had friends who've said that they knew people who were playing these games and it affected their, their relationships. Their, their wives threatened, not, not maybe not seriously, but threatened to, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave you if you don't stop playing that game and weren't paying attention totally. to their family. Um, See, it used to be that developing games created that situation. <laughs> and now it's getting to the point where playing games is creating that situation. And the solution, if there is one, is going to be to turn jobs into that experience. You're going to need to find a way to give people an immersive game environment as a way to execute their actual jobs. And that's going to be a very cool world when we get there, if we get there. So are you ever going to program games again? You know, I have a design for a game that I've been thinking of doing. I don't know if I'm going to release it to a homebrew crew or what I'm going to do. This was a game that I had thought of a long time ago as like a Yard's Revenge sequel. In 20 years, I still have never seen the gameplay done. And it's just a fundamental kind of action, multi-sensory, frenetic action gameplay, which is my favorite kind of thing. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to go before I just have to get this done yeah. because it would be such a cool game and it would be a step back in some ways to just plain you know nowadays a full gaming experience is a very cerebral thing but what we've lost is the tetris like meditative play state yeah. you know where you just get in the zone and you're just yes. doing this over and over and you need something that's that compelling to keep you there and i've had this idea that i think is that and that's my favorite kind of thing. And so, yeah. and this is a very simple, like a Tetris kind of thing. I mean, it's it's simple enough that it could be done on any platform. I totally miss games like that. And that's why I have arcade games in my house, because I enjoy playing those every day. So getting a game like that out there, I think there's so many people that want that, you know, in, in this day and age. It's, they miss that where it's not a game that you just go through and finish. It's something that you can keep playing, keep playing, and get totally addicted to. And, and I just miss Right. It. It's a how high is up kind of game. It's not a game you can finish. And, exactly. and you don't want to. No. Because that's, no. Not, that's not a game you conquer. That's an experience you enjoy. You know, and that's a diff- and that's a style of game design that's lost, and that's a shame, in my opinion. You know, me too. So, um, getting close to the end here. So, uh, what else are you working on in terms of uh, maybe Once Upon Atari? Are we going to see Once Upon Atari too? I really hope so because, like I say, it's my favorite DVD, or at least one of the top five. DVDs. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll tell you what I got. I got two things going on now. One thing, I am actually working. And I'd like to announce it here. <laughs> so you can get the scoop, is um, I'm writing a Once Upon Atari book. Now, the difference between this, because like Once Upon Atari, other than, you know, a few where I just take you from one sequence to another, I'm not really in Once Upon Atari very much. I was very self-conscious about putting myself in it. You're catatonic. Virtually. And (laughs) in reality. (laughs) But I decided to do a thing, and this is going to be just the narrative story of my experience at Atari. So it's going to be much more of my stories and the whole E.T. thing and the Yars thing and Spielberg and, you know, a lot of expose stuff and things that hadn't been talked about in Once Upon Atari. And I'm going to call it Once Upon Atari anyway. But this is going to be the book that's going to be the narrative of my my experience at Atari from start to finish and a little beyond. And I'm also talking with some Hollywood producers about doing a movie of that same thing. So that's going on. And the other thing I got going on is... uh I have put out another DVD product, 
Well, this is a thing called vice and consent. And this is, you know, believe it or not, this is a documentary exploration of the BDSM world, you know, the bondage and discipline and dominance, submission and sadomasochism. (laughs) And it's just awesome. It's getting like outrageous reviews and people are loving it because it's not a porno piece. I mean, this is just, it's like everybody thinks they know what goes on in the BDSM world, but nobody does. I can guess. <laughs> I like a lot of people. A lot of people feel they're familiar with it, but when I started, I had a friend who got into it, and I started to hear about it, oh, yeah. and I thought I knew like what was going on with there. And when I started to find out how little I knew and how different what was really going on there was from what I thought it was, I decided that would be a cool documentary. So that's awesome. So where can you get that? Because I, I know you get Once Upon Atari at onceuponatari.com, but where can you right. get this, and, this other video? You know, believe it or not, you can get Vice and Consent at viceandconsent.com. Ah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's V-I-C-E-A-N-D-C-O-N-S-E-N-T.com, viceandconsent.com. And people can go there and they can see, you know, some trailers. I'm going to have some more trailers soon. And, you know, they can uh, check out the synopses and look at the stuff. And you can go find reviews on it. And it's just really kind of an awesome thing. I mean, it's really, it's a glimpse into a world that, most of us never really get a chance to see. And what's there is so different and in some ways so much more interesting than what we think it is. But the main focus, you know, now that I've finished that, is definitely on uh, moving ahead with a new kind of Once Upon Atari product because I think that would be very cool. And you also have, like, Conquering College and, and those books available also on Once Upon Atari. That's an excellent right? point. Yeah, Conquering College is available on the Once Upon Atari website. and We're going to make that a little more visible. And, yeah. uh, and my pan book... I wish I'd have had it when I was in, in college, so I wouldn't have spent all my time studying. But uh. Well, the cool thing about Conquering College, it'll teach you how to do what I did, which was graduate in three years and save a year's tuition. These days, it's getting to be like a substantial investment. <laughs> no, it's a great book. And obviously, pick up Once Upon Atari because, like I say, it's a great DVD. Um, in the previous segment, we talked about it a lot, so hopefully that... That'll give you some idea of what's on it, but you should really pick it up because there's so much stuff in it. Like I say, each time I watch it, I, I learn something new. Thank you very much. I mean, I really appreciate it. It's really great. I hope people do pick it up and really enjoy it because everybody who's gotten it really has dug it. And I just, I, I was really glad to do it. And I really want to thank you for taking the time. I mean, we're just a, a small podcast trying to make our way, but it's really great to have you on the podcast. Yes. Well, you do know how to talk to your guests. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, and you got to remember, you know, there are no small podcasts. There are only less interesting ones. I've, I've listened to your first show, and I like that's why I'm here. I mean, I really like what you're doing. I wanted to contribute to it. Again, thank you very much for uh, for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. It was, it was my pleasure, guys. Take care. I'll dig you soon. All right. Thanks. Okay. Take it easy. Well, that about does it for episode two of Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. We'd like to thank Howard Scott Warshaw for taking the time to do the phone interview. We'd also like to say that some of the music provided tonight was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You can check them out at music.podshow.com. We'll see you in two weeks.